0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandroff and I'm one of the senior editors for the Oxford Journal Global Summitry. It's my pleasure today to introduce two colleagues that I got to know very well in South Africa. First, Chris Alden. Chris is the Professor of International Relations at the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. In his academic work, he has focused on South Africa, and particularly China-South Africa relations, but also relations between South Africa and Latin America. Maxi Schumann is my other guest. She's been at the University of Pretoria since the year 2000. She is currently the Deputy Dean, Postgraduate Studies and Ethics in the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Pretoria. I was very pleased to be able to sit down with them in the circumstances of dramatic changes going on in South Africa today, and in particular, the change in presidency with the new president being Cyril Ramaphosa. You will note that at the time uh, of our podcast, uh, the former president, Jacob Zuma, had not yet uh, been charged with fraud, corruption, graft, and racketeering. And of course, we don't, uh, in that sense, uh, we don't discuss that particular um, uh, circumstance. So let's join uh, the conversation with Chris Alden and Maxi Schumann. So it's great to have you both here with me. Uh, Chris, of course, you're in London. uh, And Maxi, you're in, presumably, you're in Pretoria at the moment. Uh, So let's launch into an examination of South Africa. Obviously, there have been uh, great changes in South Africa recently. Uh, Maxi, maybe you can start us off with a bit of backstory on the recent leadership changes That have occurred with the governing uh, ANC, the African National Congress?
1: Okay. Um, In December, the um, ANC had its five yearly national conference. At this point in time, they had to choose a new leadership because Jacob Zuma had um, served these two terms. So I think the most striking thing around that leadership. contest or, or the elections was the fact that it turned out to be a very, very tight contest, especially as far as the top six positions within the national executive of the party goes, because the um, counts to the votes were extremely tight. It was very, very close. But in the end, it was a roughly... Um, 50 50%, not only in terms of the, um, uh, the votes casted, but also in terms of three of the top six positions, one could say went to the Zuma faction, and the other three, with um, Cyril Ramaphosa being one of them, going to the Ramaphosa group. And that brought in Cyril Ramaphosa as the new president of the ANC, opening the way, of course, then for changes in government that we will probably get to in a little while. And David Mabusa about everyone was rather uncertain which way he would turn, but he turned around as almost a kind of a unifier, more on the side of Cyril Ramaphosa and him uh, becoming the new deputy president of the ANC. So it was basically the national um, conference that allowed for this change in the party leadership.
0: I see. Now, uh, maybe, uh, you know, for, for our listening audience, we can do a bit of uh, a background on Cyril Ramaphosa, who, as it turns out, became head of the party, uh, and then uh, and we'll talk about it in a moment. Also uh, turned out uh, to take the presidency, but maybe um, uh, there we can get a bit of background on on Cyril, uh, his involvement with the ANC, of course, and and in particular uh, his involvement with the first uh, post-apartheid president, Nelson Mandela.
2: Sure, <clears throat> it seems to me that uh, what's important about uh, Cyril Ramaphosa is he's. Um, He was a person who was part of the the anti-apartheid struggle in its domestic side. He was a trade unionist by background. He was brought in to negotiate the the new constitution um, and was very much seen as the the individual whom Nelson Mandela had expected and, and pointed to to be the deputy president. And in the end, he was outmaneuvered by Thabo Mbeki. Uh, and went into a in, and, and took a different turn into the business uh, side of things. But um, he was very much he, he is seen in the minds of of for many as being linked to that initial transition, that 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 great mo- great moment of transition between uh, apartheid and and the, the post-apartheid uh, governance. So it, I think there are expectations that he's going to bring some of that sensibility. Uh, back uh, I- into the governing uh, structures of of uh, the, the ANC and, and South Africa uh, overall.
0: Uh, and those those initial impulses. What are we speaking of here, Chris?
2: Well, the the era of of the transition was one of a. It was very much a liberal moment. It was a moment where issues like human rights uh, were were more to the forefront. Uh, of foreign policy concerns, um, Africa, as uh, South Africa, as as a, a leader in South in uh, on the continent, was formulated during this period. Though admittedly, Thabo Mbeki really took that up and ran with it. Um, so I think some of those uh, those those um, impulses drawn from the decade of decades of struggle uh, mm-hmm. were were brought into policy. Uh, Form under the first uh, Mandela government. So hopefully we'll see some of that sort of thing return.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, The Economist not long ago um, uh, wrote, this is the news magazine, The Economist, um, uh, had the lead of that uh, issue, which was the December 15th, 2017 issue, as the corruption of South Africa And uh, it it wrote, I mean, kind of the summary line was, under President Jacob Zuma, the state is failing. Contracts are awarded through bribes and connections. Ruling party members murder each other over lucrative government jobs. Crooks operate with impunity. Um, Do you think that this, this summary description does reflect the state of uh, party politics and more generally politics in
1: in South Africa, folks. Um, first of all, I find it interesting that article was published on the fifteenth of December, and of course, on the sixteenth of December, the party conference started. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it's almost at the if one can talk about uh, these negativities um, as a pinnacle, it was almost at the pinnacle of the whole um, Zuma regime, if you want. And to some extent, yes, we know that there have been these ruling party members um, being murdered, especially in in KwaZulu-Natal, that was a big problem. I'm not saying that that has been solved now, but it is true that there is huge corruption in terms of the ways in which um, state contracts are awarded. That is one of the big challenges that Ramaposa will have, is to try and clean up that mess. I think what's happening at the moment is that people, as Chris said, there's this hope that we will return to this Mandela era of, of high expectations, high hopes for what we can do. The, the question is whether Ramaphosa will really be able to address all of these problems. Some people would say that things have gone so far that it is very, very difficult to root out the corruption. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that Ramaphosa is really going to have a free hand uh, for dealing with this until after the 2019 elections. I think we're in a bit of a holding space at the moment. He will first have to win the election and not come in as he's done now as almost an interim president, but he will have to win the elections with the ANC in order to give him um, the kind of legitimacy that he will need to really address these very, very deep problems within the government and within the governing party.
2: Can I add one thing? that sure. Something that was said very frequently in the last couple of years was uh, uh, the aphorism that the the fish rots from the head down. If if uh, the removing of the head and replacing with a one that isn't rotten, as it were, um, and if that uh, can change, you know, the body of the fish, that's that's really what one is asking: is it enough to have a person of his caliber? And and there are also we have to keep, you know, he's not he's not without his imperfections. His, uh, certainly during his business phase, uh, there there have been some issues. Uh, around uh, his, his uh, conduct, but is this enough to begin a, a writing the, the, the body politic?
1: Yeah, but Chris, that's why I say I think we will have to wait for 2019, because if you look at the recent cabinet reshuffle, it's very clear that he, he that he still has to operate with at least one hand tied behind mm-hmm. his back, if not both hands. So the, the the question is whether we would be able to put all of this together until next year when we get an election and then um, get into things and really start addressing problems by means of getting rid of some of the people who are known to be corrupt and who we know were still left in, in government and in um, cabinet.
0: Well, you know that's kind of the question I was going to uh, raise, which is it would appear today that the governing structure isn't just in you know in the central uh, uh, government, but also lies now with very powerful figures in uh, a variety of the uh, the provinces, the states, and so uh, how does does the twenty nineteen election Bring about change there, Maxi, or does he still, he, Cyril, still have to contend with powerful factions in uh, the subnational uh, units?
1: Um, I think you are referring to under the Zuma, uh, or during the Zuma era, what we saw was um, the Premier League. In other words, a number of premiers from the different provinces, Mm -hmm. very supporting Zuma right. um, and some of them of course being fairly corrupt unfortunately two of them also made it to the top six and one of them is now the deputy president although he's turned his coat um, you see again we we're back at the 2019 elections because after those elections uh, Ramaphosa would have an opportunity should he so wish to make changes mm-hmm. um, as to the premiers of these provinces and he will most probably replace some of these premiers and that might assist in breaking some of these subnational power groups if you want. Right. Um, between now and 2019, I think he will just have to uh, contend with what he has and he will have to try and manage. And we will probably see him calling for an election um, as early as possible in 2019 so that he can move beyond the interim stage.
0: I see. Um, well, let's, let's look at the party and its relationship to the, uh, to the other contenders. We know that the ANC received 62% uh, popular vote in the 2014 election. In the uh, local elections in 2016, the popular vote fell to 54%. And in fact, the opposition, the Democratic Alliance, received about 27% and a number of important communities. And the economic freedom fighters, the EFF, received 8%. I mean, um, what is there a risk here? that uh, the ANC will lose control, or is this uh, a product of uh, the two terms of Jacob Zuma?
2: I I think that um, Sarah Ramaphosa is much more appealing to to those who, um, at least the urban, those, those who've drifted from the ANC. Who are generally in Gauteng, in the urban areas, and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. in that respect, he may reclaim some of those uh, voting support. And that that vote didn't necessarily some of it moved to the DA to the Democratic Alliance, but some of it um, just was expressed by not voting at all. So there was, you know, there there's uh, seeing how those numbers will tally up in 2019 will be a function of 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 those factors. Um, I I think that. Um, it's one thing to vote nationally. It's another thing to vote at the municipal level, and, and uh, the, the DA did very well, and it's always been their strategy to, to work from the local government and work their way up and sort of prove their, their uh, abilities uh, um, as, they go, as they go national. So it will be a very interesting moment for the DA. I also would think that uh, in this struggle between the, what, what Maxi has, has called the Premier League and particularly KwaZulu-Natal, the degree to which uh, votes leak away from uh, the ANC that have been associated with with the Zuma faction, the degree to which those uh, end up probably expressed as uh, they certainly i'd be surprised if they expressed as da but probably expressed as not not supporting the anc how how much impact that will have on on bringing anc numbers down but the basic trend is is one of diminishing um support overall probably enough to get a majority still but but still diminishing Uh,
0: just so so the audience understands I mean can you characterize the Democratic Alliance so what is it how does it come about where is
2: it going uh, it grew out of the uh, liberal white in, the, in when there were racial politics defined apartheid South Africa it, it drew it drew out of the liberal white uh, opposition but uh, after 1994 and certainly before that period as well uh, began to reach out beyond its very narrow uh, constituency. Mm -hmm. um, And and to this day is becoming increasingly uh, a a, a fully multiracial party.
1: Um, I want to make a few points. Uh, At the moment in South Africa, there's much talk about the fact that uh, Cyril Ramaphosa now being the president, that that is one of the worst things that could have hit the um, opposition parties. Mm Because of his popularity so a a lot will depend on whether he can retain this up to 2019 this newfound popularity Uh Chris is quite right around KwaZulu-Natal we need to keep in mind that once I think one very strong point around post 94 South Africa is the fact that we have managed not to fall into a kind of ethnicity like um, political environment. Uh, we, we're not very strong on the tribal thing. A lot of people feared that, but we never degenerated into tribalism. Okay. But the Zulus, and this would uh, point to uh, KwaZulu Natal, they are the biggest ethnic group and at the moment one of the dangers and i think that's what chris alluded to is the fact that there is no representation of anyone from you, uh, from KwaZulu Natal uh, in the top 6 it's the first time since 94 and it would seem as if some of the support is leaking now from the ANC in that province right. and with the zulu king all of a sudden becoming relatively strong. You see all these political parties visiting him in Ulundi, where he's got his his, his, um, uh, palace, um, and talking to him because they know that he's the one who can mobilize the support for whichever party. So uh, that is quite an important point to look at UKZN. As far as the DA is concerned, think one of the things that a lot of white people in the country who were perhaps more anti the old government, the pre-94 government, one of the things that they find difficult around a democratic alliance is the fact that it absorbed the old national party at some point Mm -hmm. and are still a little bit uncomfortable with it. And we also need to remember that even though they managed to get a high percentage of the local votes in the 2016 local government elections, in the three big metropolitan areas, they basically dependent on the EFF to stay in power, mm. even though EFF is such a small party because they needed the EFF vote um, to take over those Municipalities and the EFF is using it brilliantly. They've be- they've become the kingmakers to some extent, even though they had eight percent of the vote in twenty sixteen. So- and, and
2: some of the things that the DA uh, that uh, the EFF says or Julius Malema yep. are so, are absolutely you know on the. Uh, out- outrageous from a DA supporter position. Don't. Uh, uh, Don't. I mean, he's, they talk about decapitating the mit- uh, municipality, the white man, or something in in uh, uh, what is PE, uh, P- uh, Port Elizabeth. Uh, oh,
1: Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. really violent talk, and you can imagine that that is fairly upsetting. People do not necessarily see it as being um, a metaphor or something. You know, uh, immediately it is. Uh, broadcasted that Malema says that uh, you know the EFF should cut the throats of white people. So it's very difficult. It's a difficult alliance between the DA and the EFF, and I can't see it. I can't see that it is sustainable mm-hmm. uh, in the in the medium term. It's just they just the only thing that united them was their opposition to the ANC. But for the rest, there's nothing there. And I take it that the EFF
0: has generally proposed uh, a very uh, radical economic uh, change uh, as well, right? That uh, they, they talk about seizing uh, uh, property, uh, you know, largely white property, and that, that kind of uh,
2: solution to
0: the economic problems of, of the poor.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean they don't. You know, it's not it's not a well articulated policy, but it is a sort of set of policies. But it has a it resonates, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they they often draw upon the the, the Freedom Charter 1955 as a, a kind of founding document, which they, they parties, liberation oriented parties want to draw all draw on that that kind of mandate to say we are you know that we have. Uh, True liberation as our as our end goal, and we will deliver it to you. So the EFF has has uh, as people become disappointed with the ANC or perceived it to be compromised, corrupted, and compromised. The EFF tries to position itself as as um, the party that you know picked up the mantle of of what its interpretation of what uh, liberation means.
0: I see, and I and I take it that uh, under the the two terms, or almost two terms, of President Zuma, there has not been a significant uh, progress in reducing the uh, uh, dramatic uh, inequality in income or wealth in South Africa, and that that's one of the, you know, kind of key political problems that uh, uh, Ramaphosa sta- uh, you know, faces.
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, that's an interesting one. I was um, doing. Uh, I was reading up a little, bit with a view to this afternoon's conversation, one should not um, forget that there have been significant changes since '94. Uh, for instance, ninety percent uh, increase in the number of households in formal dwellings. That's not bad. Since 94, a 32% increase in GNP per capita. University enrollments up by 78%. So, plus, and this is a very, very important uh, point, the bringing in the idea of social security grants going to 17 million people. These are things that the ANC can point to and can say that they have changed for the better. And I do think that should be recognized. But the fact of the matter is, I almost want to say the joke about all this, is if you look at the ratio of white wealth compared with black wealth, that has increased since 94. So white people today are richer than they were okay. during the apartheid era. And I mean, I count myself in there, and, and I, I think I'm a very good example of that. Um, we are richer. Um, white unemployment is at around 6%. That's comparable to sort of, you know, your uh, EU countries. Right. Um, as black unemployment, in the wider definition of unemployment, is around um, 40%, with youth unemployment, black uh, youth black unemployment, 48%. Compare that with, if we look at youth unemployment amongst white South Africans, it's 8%. So those disparities are still huge, despite some of the good things that the ANC managed to do. Mm -hmm. And the Gini uh, coefficient um, on the Human Development Index remains the highest in the world. So we haven't really, it's difficult to explain, but we haven't really managed to address that triple crisis that we got you know, that, that that we've had since 94, which is, it's unemployment, mm-hmm. uh, poverty, mm-hmm. and then of course inequality, which cuts across, it's not only economical, you know, in the economy, across all sectors of society, we're still saddled with that problem.
0: And, and you referenced the Gini coefficient, and of course that's the measure yeah. of inequality. Uh, that uh, is often used, and as you pointed out, South Africa has one of the highest uh, it's the Gini coefficients.
1: Is the highest at yep. the moment. It's usually between South Africa and Brazil, Brazil. and about a yep. month ago, um, you know, we got the latest figures, and um, it is at um, 0.55. It's very high. It, It just doesn't tell a good story. And it explains the politics of the EFF, as Chris said, this radical kind of approach. And can one blame them because they see very little change? Mm
2: -hmm. But but can I jump in uh, on this on the statistics and and what have you? One of the other things as far as um, uh, the white population goes, is there far fewer white to south africans in south africa anymore and so i mean the numbers change the 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 concentrations of wealth are part, may be partly a function of the fact that the per, per capita that fewer are there are they're accumulating uh that those who are left have have uh, you know uh Buy, their buying power, their per capita incomes are higher, but it it not spread quite across the same number mm-hmm. of, of individuals. It's a I don't know. It's, it used to be about fifteen percent in ninety four, I think, of the population. Now I think it's it's under ten percent. This is the white so that, population. The white population. I'm just saying if we're if we're look, reading this through. Um, uh, reading it without recognizing demographic change
0: yeah right
2: yeah. in the populations yes. and I think that the numbers it may be explainable if one if one uh, sees outward immigration declining birth rates that kind of thing I see
1: okay. I agree with you but the problem is always um, that, that I find um, living here is the fact that to try and explain things rationally to people, It just doesn't always work. Yes, you're right. We're down from thirteen percent to nine percent of the population. But the fact is that if you look at the percentages of, for instance, you know, who are the people who have got degrees, who have got higher education, who are the senior managers in the economy, who are the richest people. Unfortunately, it is still overwhelmingly white. And I think that is where a lot of the frustration comes from because it's that typical thing of, you know, inheriting the political kingdom, but um, there's very little else that one can show uh, past 94. And this is the thing that we have to contend with. And government tried to address this, because you will know under the um, um, uh, growing a black middle class, may be choosing the wrong approach to that because the only thing you did was growing a tiny, tiny group of very, very rich black so-called entrepreneurs. But the rest of the population is still without anything. So that attempt at addressing poverty and inequality did not really work. And it's as if we do not know what to put in its place.
0: Um, you know, uh, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, uh, uh, Cyril represents what in South Africa they call the black diamonds. He's clearly yep. one of those. Do you think politically uh, that might hurt him uh, as he uh, moves forward towards and then ha- uh, holds the 2019 elections?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> part of his, uh, the, the um uh, massacre, as it's called, uh, killing. the In fact, uh, on and on one of the striking mines, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa was uh, on the board of directors uh-huh. of, of the mine in question, and there's are some uh, fingers being pointed to blame for, if, if, if at the very least, inaction or, or or being associated with the actions of the of the company, mm-hmm. um, at the very least. Um, uh, so this is one example. And it was really the first time that debates around uh, companies that uh, post-apartheid, that that uh, companies in the mining sector that were, it um, opened up the debate about the black diamond factor. About uh, it also gave a great big boost to uh, Julius Malema. That was a turning point for for his uh, political career. He he made great hay out of this particular. Uh, tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that uh, he's he does Cyril's. There is something there that can uh, uh, can be called upon and critiqued pretty readily. His his fabulous wealth. Yeah, uh, he's yep. a very wealthy man. He's uh, he was. It was also in the public domain that when he bought a prize a Brahmin bull for I, I think it's sort of in the order of uh, several hundred uh, million uh, rand. You know this kind of stuff that is really. Far beyond the reach of any ordinary uh, individual, how he can take reconcile the trade unionist we've just described earlier with the billionaire rand billionaire, and and now the presidency, uh, was supposed to be leading the majority of people. That's that that uh, complicated yeah. picture uh, is going to be the challenge for him as a politician. Yeah.
1: So and the I- way in which Malema can play that, of course, yeah. I think mm. is um, he's watching the whole thing, and um, he will play it when uh, when he feels it's necessary to do it. So, so
0: <laughs> presumably the opposition, particularly the EFF and Malema, uh, are not restrained necessarily uh, when it comes
2: to portraying uh, the new leader of the ANC. Absolutely not. It's interesting though, uh, Cyril has been actively courting, publicly courting Julius Malema saying you're really ANC. You should be back. You should mm-hmm. come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I would imagine that's a that that in the longer term that's about clipping wings, bringing those that that voice of dissent in, and uh, uh, and uh, clipping his wings when he's in the party. I see. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Let's turn just a little bit as we uh, work towards uh, how South Africa is viewed from the outside, given. The two terms of uh, Jacob Zuma. Now, it's it's fairly clear that South Africa has certainly on the continent has been admired uh, for its um, uh, prudence, uh, if I can put it that way, with respect to um, uh, particularly uh, the central bank, the Reserve Bank, and more generally, you know, the prudence with respect to taxation and revenue generation, etc um uh how much has south africa in your opinion suffered um uh in its kind of lead role with respect to the continent
2: i think it suffered i think the work we've done has suggested suffered a lot actually it may have started from an overinflated sense of its uh uh, perception as as leader that also could be a factor here but Certainly, it's it's done. Jacob Zuma's conduct and the conduct of his administration has done the country no 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 favors as as far as image goes and actual policies.
0: So I I mean I guess then the question becomes well and most most immediately, uh, the next uh, uh, South Africa is in the uh, G20, uh, which Argentina is hosting. But it is also in the BRICS, uh, uh, the Brazil, Russia, India, China uh, kind of forum. Uh, and the next summit is being held, uh, in fact, in South Africa. Uh, so hmm. so how, how does the new government kind of deal with its uh, role on the, on the uh, uh, international stage?
2: No, I think this is a big challenge. I mean, it's a, it's particularly a challenge because it's a new government that's that still is, as Maxi was saying, still really doesn't have all the political levers uh, yes. needed to to articulate a new view or or a, a special uh, a, a view that that reflects Sil uh, Ramaphosa's outlook and those of his colleagues. So I think that that that's going to inhibit his ability to articulate new agendas. You know, there'll be lots of I think. Gestures to didn't it to distance South Africa uh, the current South Africa from from the zoom administration But the substance still won't be on the table yet right.
0: Maxine,
1: I, I yeah. think I agree because it's it's not only a new president. It's also a new Minister of inter, uh, international relations and cooperation mm. yeah. and not someone uh, who is or, you know, she doesn't have all that much experience, so it would be interesting to see how they're going to uh, deal with it. But I can say one thing, and that is that they they still take it very seriously. One, they do not underestimate... The uh, prestige value that South Africa finds in being a member of BRICS, much more than being a member of the G20. I think that very few people would know what you talk about when you say G20. BRICS, everyone knows. And it's a big thing that we're sitting there, and most people think of BRICS as China and South Africa. I, I You know, the others also do not feature much locally. Is that right? So... It, it- It
2: would be very interesting with this upcoming BRICS summit to see if the degree to which uh, what has been a very conscious tilting, picking up on that China and South Africa as as the BRICS, read read through South Africa as as, as BRICS, the the, the very obvious tilt under Zuma towards China, whether the BRICS event to be held this year, the summit to be held this year in South Africa, whether that that continues to be uh, carried forward. Uh, under so Ramaphosa. that that uh, because he has many of the this is a china that is now consciously self-consciously branding itself not just as a development state but uh, you know authoritarian state with un, uh, with no term limits and all of those sort of things
1: yeah mm-hmm. so-, so it would be interesting but then you know on the other hand i do think that the south africans still believe that the chinese connection it's hugely important because we still believe to some extent that that is where, where the salvation will come from in terms of mm. investment and everything else so i think it will be important I, I must just quickly tell a little joke here chris you would have picked up on this uh when ramaphosa was trying to maneuver zuma out of the presidency one of the things that zuma said was he wanted to stay on at least until the BRICS summit so that he could introduce Ramaphosa to the other BRICS leaders which I found quite um, a a sign of how important Zuma um, considered BRICS to be and South Africa's participation but also using it as an excuse for staying in power for another few months.
0: (laughs) Um, You know, if you look over the last few years, uh, the message, whether it's in the G20 or in, uh, in the um, uh, AU or in the BRICS, um, the South African message seemed or the narrative seemed to become uh, more, if I can put it this way, more extreme in the sense of um, the, the visions of the world. I wonder is uh, is the current government more likely assuming success um, you know, in terms of popularity and so forth, to to tone that message a bit in terms of its international presence or not?
2: Yes. Yeah, the the ANC generally, if one reads the policy documents and what have you, the the, the, the rank and file have a view that that uh, draws on many ideological what we would see see as as solidarity politics even politics of cold war thinking of the cold war so i, I think that uh, this is you know this is what the base uh, apparently thinks about international politics when they put their mind to it and uh, i think that the the leadership can either dampen that or draw from it uh zuma drew from it as yeah. as a, a support i don't know how, uh, what Ramaphosa will do, but as I said, uh, for me the BRICS summit would be a place where one could see some preliminary sing- signals if this kind of ideology, this heated uh, discourse coming out of the ANC, is still going to be featured in how the how uh, politics is uh, international politics and foreign policy are presented.
1: One sees well, a little bit of a toning down um, already, I think although it has to do with domestic politics, you know, and our image in the world, but Lindiwe Sestoulou, the new minister, one of the first public statements that she made was to try and, if I can put it like this, appease the international community around the land issue. Um, this, I think yesterday, it, uh, the new minister of finance, for well, the old minister who's again now the new minister, of finance uh, uh, managed to tone down the ANC, who wanted to have a big discussion in parliament on the possibility of nationalizing the country's reserve bank, the equivalent of the, um, um, uh, the your uh, the American Federal Reserve. Yeah. So, and, and say, be very careful, you know, wait with this. We need to have more clarity on. What it is exactly that we're going to do? So, in terms of what happens domestically, there's definitely already an attempt to portray a different kind, a less radical kind of South Africa to the outside world. They are lobbying very hard for the third term um, uh, as non-elected or uh, as elected member on the security council. But I don't agree with Chris. We think. To see how from because it will be his first opportunity really to make very um, to make international statements, if you want, on how South Africa sees its position in the world, not so much how it sees its domestic politics against the background of the rest of the world. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you
0: both for taking the time to converse with us on. Uh, both the domestic and international side of South Africa. I really appreciate it. I want to thank you both for that.
2: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Hi, this is Alan Alexandrov again. I'd like to uh, thank you for listening to the Global Summetry podcast. This particular episode uh, was edited by Kyle Fulton. The music you heard in this episode, was composed and performed by Rory Laval, L-A-V-E-L-L-E. You can find more of his music at rorylaval.bandcamp.com. Please do uh, listen in again. Let your colleagues and friends know about our podcast. We look forward to having you with us again shortly.